Hey everyone, and uh, welcome. This is holiday chat number one for 2021. And I'm joined by Sari Ibrahim, who's uh, just outside of Chicago. And Sari wanted to be live on video and everything. So Sari, welcome. Merry Christmas, man. Merry Christmas, David. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, well, no problem. I mean, uh, just to remind everyone, uh, Sari paid for this call. So this is a real business consulting call. And we're here to talk about what he wants to talk about with respect to his business and what his goals are. And so why don't we start off, why don't you tell me the business that you're in, what you're doing right now? Yeah, definitely. So right now I'm a financial planner and an insurance agent, and I run a, like a company called Financial Asset Protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also a base, bank on yourself professional, which I think you're familiar with that concept, the bank on yourself concept. Yeah, uh, Mark a, Willis I'm, has been on my YouTube channel a few times to talk about it, yeah. Yeah, he's actually my mentor. Um, okay. So so yeah, um, I work with Mark Willis closely and I, I, I help clients build out bank on yourself policy so that way they can build wealth for their future, also protect it from various risks. That's kind of the core of the business. And then also some back end things like insurance. We do like different types of life insurance. Um, and then my background is also in Medicare. So I do a lot of like health insurance as well for clients. That's kind of the, the, the type of business I'm in. And I'm looking to expand and get into different and grow like rapidly. Um, and then one of the ways I'm thinking of growing rapidly is through um, acquisitions, through buying other businesses that are established businesses that already have cash flow, already have clients, and then kind mm-hmm. of just take it over um, in all 50 states in the United States. Okay. So let me ask you a few sort of ground rule type questions about okay. your industry. So it's my understanding that to sell life insurance, you need to have a license. Yes. And is that a state thing? Yes, it is. So um, in, in the state of Illinois, I, got, I had to take a test. Uh, for four licenses. But if I want to, for example, write in California or Florida, I could do so just by logging into a website and then just paying for the license. So it's very easy to write in all 50 states as, a, as an insurance agent. Oh, they have some sort of reciprocal understanding between the state. Okay. Yes. So, so then um, the idea that you want to buy an existing business, I mean, this makes sense. It's what we talk about all the time because you already get that cash flow that's out there. Um, is there any particular reason why you want to be in every state? Yeah, I just want to go as wide as possible. Um, just for more, it's kind of like the, the probability. Like if I can go wider, I think I could get a, a longer reach. And right now I'm already writing business in different states as is. So if somebody, for example, in Florida reaches out to me or California, I can help them. No problem. The same way as if they were here in Chicago. So I just kind of wanted to expand. Plus, um, it's from, from my research, it's really difficult to buy an existing business. It's, it's typically a seller's market. So if, if I can expand the territories, then I, I can increase the chances of finding that book of business for sale. Okay. So if honestly, like yeah. the license thing, you know, if, if you needed to have an office in each state in order to have a license in each state, that would be a different kind of conversation than what the reality is, because the reality is you don't need an office in every state in order to do business in every state. Right. Exactly. And so, so the, the, the question of, you know, geographically, where do I want to buy businesses? I don't think it's nearly as important as defining the types of businesses you want to buy more so to do with their characteristics, maybe about the number of clients they serve or the average size of the clients they serve or, or some other metric like that. Um, Because, you know, I don't see the geographical constraint, especially where, especially now, mm-hmm. I mean, at one time, I'm sure people looked forward to meetings at a, their planner's office, right? And they went in yes. there and sat down and that's probably not happening at all anymore. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, Zoom is, is as effective right now, almost as meeting in person. Yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely. I think that, you know, the whole idea of doing it remotely, it's, it's very possible with this type of business. So let me ask you about, about your, your revenue from a client. Yes. So can you describe the, like if I, if a new client walks through your door and they wanted to do some business with you and let's say they bought a life insurance policy, um, what does that look like from you as far as revenue? Uh, I mean, my understanding is that there's a big commission in the beginning and then some kind of fee yeah. that carries on. Is that how it goes? Yeah. And, and that really varies, David. It could be anywhere from uh, three, two or $3,000 to, from, from my experience to a little bit over $20,000. So really it's, it's kind of a big jump, um, that can go. Um, and I think it's, it's a good thing, obviously, because 
you know, there's a lot, it's a, it's a very, it's a very lucrative business to be in. And it's also very beneficial for the clients too. So it's like a win-win that we can set up for the clients. But yeah, to answer your question between like two and like 20,000 from, from the cases I've worked on. Okay. And so if you earned $10,000 from yes. signing up a new policy, let's say from a new client, how much would you then earn every year for servicing that relationship? Yeah, the, the following commissions are going to be significantly less, maybe a few hundred dollars at that point for trailing commissions for, for the life of that policy. Okay. So what work have you done into learning about how these businesses are valued? Have, have you talked with anyone or read anything about it? Yeah, definitely. This has been on my mind for a few years. Uh, so one thing I've learned is that if it's an insurance agency with an established book, you're looking at two to 2.25 times the annual revenue. And what that means is annual revenue means that the entity is earning in commission and gross commission. Yes. So for example, ABC Inc., the entity earns $100,000 from various insurance companies. That is their revenue. And then you multiply that by two to 2.25 times or an average in between there to come up with the market value of that agency. And then you could even take it a step further and you can finance that. Um, I've talked to two lenders so far that specialize in insurance agency financing, and they both said that they could do 100% financing over a 10-year period, which means, yeah. Okay. Do, are, are, every time you talk to someone like that lender, are you, are you making sure they understand you're talking about a life insurance agency and not a property and casualty insurance agency? Oh, good question. Yeah. So thank you for making that distinction. They are mostly referring to property and casualty, which I have my licenses there and I do have experience in that field. So yes, um, it they're mostly looking for property and casualty because property and casualty commissions are uh, the same every year. So if it's 10% this year, it's going to be 10% the following year. So the bank is going to look at this now as if this agency makes $100,000 a year in revenue and most of it is property and casualty, then they can bet that the following years are going to be similar yeah. to that initial year. Yeah. So. It's very, it's very rare that we hear about what are essentially small businesses selling for multiples of revenue. But the reality is in, in the property and casualty insurance industry, especially like auto home business yes. liability insurance, um, the vast majority of clients just renew every year. Yes. They get a thing in the mail that just says, you know, you're renewed again and they don't <laughs> do anything yeah. unless, yeah. unless somebody you know, unless they have a bad experience, maybe making a claim, or if, if uh, someone comes knocking on the door and says, Hey, I can save you 50 bucks or, or they see the <laughs> lizard on the TV. Right. And so um, in the property and casualty space, I was involved in working on a, on a deal with somebody in that space before and the multiple they got, uh, or the multiple they paid to acquire the business was actually a little bit higher than what you're describing, but it was hundred percent PNC and you're mm -hmm. right, that auto insurance policy pays the same commission every year. Yep. And so it's a very even flow of, of cash flow. I would say that if you're the reason why I talked about the commissions is because if I was going to acquire a life insurance uh, book in, 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 from a business, to me, it would, it would be really important to understand how much of the revenue in the past few years came from new policy commissions versus the trailing commissions. Be, because the new commissions, I would, I would discount that significantly Yeah, because that, I mean, that represents a sale that was made, but, you know, in, and maybe you can answer me this question because you're in this industry now, in most of these offices, what percentage of the new policies are sold to existing clients versus new people recruited out from, from the path, from the green field, from the, from the market? Yeah, that's, I, I wish I knew that answer. I don't know specifically, like, for example, if I were to go to an agency, I don't know how much they would have. Um, like, for example, in my agency, I'm because I've, I've been in the business for a few years, most of my business is newer. So it's, it's within a few years. But if somebody, for example, has an established agency that's been in business for like 20 years, I, don't, I really can't tell how much of that is going to be based off of new versus old. I would assume that the older the book of business, the older the policies are and less likely they are prospecting for new clients. Because one, one trend that I've seen with insurance agents and financial advisors, especially ones that have been in the business for like 20 or 30 years, is they start to wind down on like new business practices and they're just living off of the residuals and the renewals for the most part from what I've seen. Yeah. Uh, in my own experience, knowing people that are in this industry, a lot of people get into it. A lot of those people don't really make it and they end up leaving because yeah. they have a hard time getting going. 
Um, the ones that do make it work really hard for a long time to just, just to get to a subsistence level. And then if they do well and they make it, then they tend to do very well for, you know, the middle part of their career. And so it's, it's definitely a lucrative thing to get into if you can get that traction and get things going. Um, when, when you do find a deal and you're looking at the due deal, and I know we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here, but I would actually, in a due diligence on one of these practices, look at every new policy sold in the mm -hmm. prior year to find out if it was sold to a new or an existing client. Because like I once worked on a project for a church that wanted to borrow money to do an expansion. And I was speaking with a banker and they sent me um, a, a package that basically outlined the bank's analysis for um, lending to congregations because they, you know, there's no personal guarantee in that loan, right? You have a congregation of people. And so the, the, you know, and the bank's got collateral in the building, but who wants to foreclose on a church, right? Yeah. Nobody does, right? Yeah. So they, they had this methodology that they had created where they, they actually did what, what was called a giving unit analysis. And so they, they would actually have the church give them the roster of members and they would break it down by households. And they would classify the households by age cohort. And, and they would do an analysis for, they had estimates on the length of time that, you know, a family with children might continue to be a member of the church versus people in their seventies, right? You know, shorter time frame, obviously. But that cohort that was older, maybe are bigger contributors. And so they had this whole matrix done up for analyzing the congregation and what the likelihood would have been for that congregation to continue to bear the, the payments, you know, over 15 years or whatever it was. And it was really interesting to me because, because I'd never seen anything like that before, but it suddenly occurs to me that what you're looking at is the same kind of thing mm -hmm. where if you're going to acquire uh, this book of business, you're going to want to dig into who the clients are to see what likelihood there is. You, you, in your original email to me, you said you wanted to, you know, acquire these practices to look at cross-selling services, financial planning, um, asset protection, and, and uh, insurance mm -hmm. programs and things. And so I think that kind of analysis would be required just to find out how much potential might reside in the client pool. Have you ever heard of anyone like doing that kind of work? Yeah, definitely. And that's kind of my why, like the objective I have is that so my main focus is bank on yourself. That's what I want to expand on. And then as you may know, with bank on yourself, not everybody would be a typical bank on yourself client. Typically um, they're going to have, make more money. They're going to be more educated from the experience we've seen working with bank on yourself clients. So that's who I want to go for. So I'm, if I find an agency, I'm going to be thinking about, could I cross sell potentially bank on yourself type whole life policies to this target, to this, to this market. And if the answer is no, then it's probably not going to be a good fit. So that's, that's the core of my decision-making is that can I expand bank on yourself with that? So one of your classifications or metrics might be to find out how many people amongst the clientele group are entrepreneurs, for example. Yeah, that's a perfect, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the ideal customer. That's the ideal client. It's our entrepreneurs. Okay. So what... Here's, here's why I, I think this is a, an important conversation, because um, you're not just looking for life insurance agency that might be for sale. Yes. You're looking for a life insurance agency with certain characteristics. And um, as you said, the, the market is competitive for these things, because when someone wants to put one up for sale, there's a lot of people probably that they can be connected to. I honestly don't think a lot of these things go through brokers because these people are connected to each other, right? Mm -hmm. yes. Through organizations and 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 the carriers that they that they carry, you know, they meet each other at conferences and meetings and stuff. And so if someone decides to retire, they can usually through their network find someone that wants to buy, right? Mm -hmm. And so I th I think what it'll come down to is coming up with a definition of what kind of book of business you want to buy so that you can clearly communicate that when you reach out to people that are in the industry, like almost create, almost creating um, a grocery list of what you're looking for in their book mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to incentivize people who have a book that looks like that to come and talk with you. Right. 
because of, you know, because it's what you're looking for. Now, if someone's, <clears throat> if you tell people exactly what they're looking for and they bring it exactly to you, there's going to be some sort of expectation that this is, has an additional value to you. Right. Right. So what is your capacity? A lot of the times these practices are heavily dependent upon the owner being one of the key players in the office. Mm -hmm. Right. So have you thought about your capacity to, to sort of take over and run that other business? I mean, you're starting off, so you probably have a lot of capacity yourself to do in the first acquisition. But if you then do this second one, you're now starting to talk about really building a team up. Exactly. And this is where in the email I mentioned to you, potentially starting a fund. So like a private equity firm that raises capital from limited partners. And then we go out and we buy these practices. Um, so essentially, we'd, we'd have two partners. One would be the limited partners through the private equity setting, like investing in multifamily syndications like in real estate. And then the other would be like uh, the, the bank, raising um, borrowing from the bank. And the reason why we want that extra money is so that we could potentially um, hire consultants to help with sales and marketing. And then we could do more things. We could, like For example, with the employees, we could give them a bonus to keep them. We'd have these reserves in place to be able to do these things. So I did think about that, like, here I am, a new agent buying this agency. How do I know the clients are going to be uh, uh, responsive and, and stay with us? And it's obviously going to be heavily going to be on sales and marketing to that original client base. And I think that the sellers would be more comfortable if we told them these things. If we said that we already have a system in place to communicate with the clients immediately, to engage with them, to do policy reviews. Um, and, and the system is gonna be meant for um, really like no limits to it. So if we took, whether, whether we took over one agency or 10 agencies, we would have the resources behind us to be able to manage each client individually uh, on that skill. That's kind of my idea of how I wanted to go about this. I don't know what you think about that. Well, well, this is, <clears throat> the, the challenge that I see is this. If you're, if you're buying one of these books of business based on a multiple of the total revenue into the office, mm -hmm. which is how these things are priced because of the, the nature of the, of the business. And <clears throat> that seller, they work there every day, usually, right? They're yeah. running this business. And so if you, the first one you acquire, you're probably going to be able to take over that role of, of managing those relationships. But the second, third, and fourth, you have people that are retiring, they're going to have to be replaced by people. And, and those people are going to probably have significant income requirements. Like if you're going to hire someone like yourself yeah. to be the, the point of contact for, you know, a portfolio of these clients, then the PNL for you is going to be very different than what it is for them is what I'm trying to get at. Mm -hmm. And so, so, you know, you will be looking at the EBITDA cash flow level. I mean, normally we talk about sales, gross profit, uh, EBITDA, and then SDE, and we're multiplying the SDE. Here we're out multiplying the top number. If you add another significant expense into there, what it's going to do is change the whole dynamic of the rate of return on this acquisition, right? And, mm -hmm. and so, so this is the challenge, is that as you get bigger and you acquire more of these, you have to be able to <clears throat> have a, <clears throat> sorry, a system that allows you to control that cost. Because if, if you buy a practice, let's say it has a revenue, uh, commission revenue of 200 grand. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and right now that broker, <clears throat> excuse me, right now that broker has a rented office and he's got an assistant and he's got some other things and he's paying like 50 grand of overhead, let's say, right? So he has 150 grand of his own earnings and that's what they enjoy today. And they have a very successful business. And then you come in and you pay half a million dollars for that, mm -hmm. right? But you're not going to have the 150 grand because you're now probably going to have to pay someone to be the person in charge of that book of accounts. So now you have to pay them out of the 150 and you end up with, with less money. And, and what I'm thinking is that in this line of work with the kind of, you know, they're probably going to be some kind of commission-based role, right? Mm -hmm. But that means that every new policy that's signed, that commission check for the agency gets now split somehow. Yes. Between you and that individual. And, and so this is my concern is that it, it's, 
The reason why there are thousands and thousands of these brokerages out there is because it's a really great business for a person to be in. It starts to become more challenged the bigger you get. Do you know of some examples of businesses that have been built out in the way you are planning that, that you can look at? Not specifically like the way um, I just, I just, I was just thinking, for example, of like a lot of, I do a lot of podcasting and a lot of the podcasts I'm on are with real estate uh, syndicators, people who run our general partners who run these uh, multifamily syndications, for example, they'll raise 200,000 and then buy a property for a million dollars. Um, 200,000 from the limited partners and then the rest of it through bank financing, traditional bank financing. So I thought, you know, what if we could apply that same logic towards insurance agencies where we well, treat you, like you can, you can certainly try to apply it. What you need is a cash flow forecast that's going to show what the performance is going to look like because then you have to rationalize is there going to be enough of that cash flow after we pay someone, whatever the new cost structure is. Maybe you get rid of the office. I don't know. You're yeah, going to have yeah. to figure out what the cost structure is going to be and what the cash flow will be, and then backtrack to make sure that if you borrow, there's going to be cash flow to make the, the debt service payments. Yes. And there's going to be enough money there to give those investors a yield, whether yes. regardless of the structure, right? Like if it's <clears throat> some kind of limited partnership or whatnot. Um, I mean, that's, that's being creative. That's great. Um, it's it, the, the nice thing about being in this kind of business is that you get to rub shoulders with a lot of people that have some money. Yep. Right. I mean, you could probably find those investors maybe amongst your clientele, people who, who might be interested in looking at that. Exactly. That's, that's the angle I was taking is that if, if, for example, somebody wants to be a limited partner, they could potentially be a client and vice versa. A client could be a limited partner moving forward. Plus, one of the ways that a lot of financial advisors grow is through joint ventures. They'll joint venture with either a CPA, a certified public accountant, mm-hmm. or a tax attorney. And those are the two best referral sources to get. But they're also the hardest referral sources to get. Because think about it this way, David. If you're a CPA, you have 500 clients. And I come to you and I say, hey, David, I could really use your clients. We could do a good match. There's probably a 99% chance you're not going to want to do business with me because CPAs by nature tend to be more risk averse. They don't want to take on additional risk. They want to ma- they want to manage their firms. It's very difficult. But what if I can go to the CPA and say, hey, um, I have this limited partnership opportunity. And then now they're limited partners in this in this firm. They understand numbers very well. So they, they like the numbers they, they see. They become limited partners. Now, moving forward, the CPA might have some clients who need financial services and I think that the best referral partner they would think of is the entity that they own part of. Do you yeah. think that's good? Do you concur? It, well, it, it comes down to whether or not they trust you. Yeah. Well, and, if they're investing in, in, as a limited well, partner. But at the, at the end of the day, people, business is done between people. And so, you know, if you, if you went to a, a CPA and said, I have a financial firm you can invest in, and then you can send clients, I can tell you if I was that CPA, I would say, wait a minute, you want me to put money in and then you want me to send the clients so that the business is built up. Like, like maybe if you had a limited partnership and you gave them one of the limited partnership units for free. Okay. Like I'll make you a partner in this. And then in exchange for this, we expect to have a flow of clients from you or something like that. I don't know. Like, again, it's only limited by your own creativity, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, and it would have to fit within uh, two. The other consideration that those CPAs are going to have is number one, if they start sending clients to you, that is an implied endorsement. Yeah. So, so this is the trust has to be there. Absolutely. They have to know that you're good at what you do and you're, you know, stand up guy. That's number one. Number two, um, you know, the CPAs probably have some kind of code of ethics that probably talks about disclosures and secret profits and stuff like that. So, so they're going to have to disclose all of that to the people that they refer over. So it's, it's um, a great idea. I would say that the, the difficulty is in the execution because it's at the end of the day, it's got to be built upon relationships and trust and understanding. Uh, um, Let's let's talk about finding these these books yeah. of business because I think that the very first thing. Oh, Sarah, did you cut out? Yeah. I'm still here, but I think my camera. I'm just sorry. Um, 
says looking for the phone. So I use my uh, my phone. Oh, there you go. Okay, sorry. Oh, okay. So the um, because I think the first acquisition is going to be the most important one for you. That that first deal, which is going to allow you to build out your own primary office, mm-hmm. so that you can have more income, more cash flow. You can probably add those clients and you can probably service them yourself for the most part with help from assistants and things like that. And so I think that the first thing you want to do is, is work on that description of exactly, sorry, I have a frog in my throat. I promise it's not, it's not the bug going around. Here we go. Hot coffee. That'll help. Um, I think working on the description uh, and so, you know, um, you know, that you can get financing. You spoke with the banker, right? Mm-hmm. You know, probably how many clients you could probably handle. Mm-hmm. So you're probably, you could probably create a sketch of just how big a book of business, how much revenue would they would have. So for example, if you said, you know, I could deal with, a $500,000 acquisition of a, of a book that's producing $200,000 a year. And, and you would probably know better than I, how many clients that might represent. Right. So for $200,000 a year cash flow, that might be what three or 400 clients or, or would it be far less? I'm not sure. If it's property and casualty mixed in there too. Um, let's see. I would say so about maybe if it's property and casualty, maybe $500 per year per client. So then. So that would be like 400 clients or something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So would, does it make sense that there are people out there that have that number of clients or are in general, would these businesses be bigger than that? Yeah, that's a good range. I think, I think even 500 would be a good range. Sorry about this. I think I, Okay. My camera. Yeah, but I think that's a good range. So small business, financial services, insurance agency, 500 is a, is a decent number. That's, I would say that's the average of a small established small uh, business, okay. insurance business. So we know that we're looking for a business that has about 500 clients, right? Yeah. But we could describe that as four to 600. We can give yes. a range, right? And then we can start to say that we're looking for a book that has a good number of entrepreneurs within the clientele. Yeah. Right. And we can, we can start to describe it with some other characteristics, perhaps, you know, after, after you think about it for a while, and then you want to start prospecting, you know, you're in sales right now, right? You're, you're out there looking for customers. Hunting for a business to buy is a sales effort. Yes. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is you're selling an opportunity to exit plainly. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so just like any sales effort, you have, you start with suspects. So it's, it may be quite easy to find a list somewhere. Like maybe there's a licensing directory, or maybe there's like an association directory or something where you could by state, maybe find all the people in a certain category. Right. Mm -hmm. So that becomes your suspect list. And then what I always advise people to do is to migrate suspects into prospects. So you look them up, you know, if you look up one of these offices and you find a website that shows that they've got, you know, half a floor on a tall building and there's 200 people that work there. Well, it's probably not the one you're trying to buy. Right. (laughs) And so, and so you can start to triage your suspects and, and whittle down the list a little bit, you know, based on, and you know, you find another one is like a sole practitioner, you know, maybe with an assistant or something. And you're like, okay, that looks like the kind of place also, you know, if you look them up and you look them up on LinkedIn, you can also do like the, the gray hair test, right? Is this a person who's 35 or is this a person who's like 60, right? Yeah. And you and you could probably whittle it down even further on that based on who looks like they might be interested maybe in retiring at some point in the next few years. And then you start creating relationships. So it's it's a matter of reaching out and contacting them and putting something in front of them that shows them what this is that you're looking for. And you could very well meet people who will call you back and say, yeah, that's my practice, but I'm not ready to go yet. Or, or my practice looks like this. Are you interested? And it just, it creates conversations, but those people may not be ready to buy what you're offering to sell right now. 
So like in my business buyer adventure group coaching program, mm-hmm. a lot of the people are working on this. Like they're, they're making contact. They're trying to, trying to uh, make relationships with people that own the business that fits the description of what they're looking to buy. And um, they'll talk to people who don't want to sell. And, you know, they just keep at it. They keep at it. They keep working this list, working the list. They send reminders sometimes through LinkedIn or phone call or what have you. And then something changes in the life of that owner. And all of a sudden they're like, well, you know, maybe I do need to retire. Maybe a spouse becomes ill. Maybe something, an accident happens. Mm-hmm. The sale of a small business is almost always precipitated by a change in personal conditions. Right. So something happens in the person's life. Now they say, I need to turn the page. I need to do something else. And so at that moment, if they're thinking, well, maybe it's now time to sell the business, well, they know someone who wants to buy it. Right. And so I've I've worked with some people who have been doing this prospecting work over years. And at first, it's very difficult. It's hard to stick with it. And it doesn't seem like it's yielding much. And then all of a sudden, they start to hear back from people. And then they start to hear back from people. And then they hear from someone they sent, sent out a, a letter or something to two years before. And that person kept it and, and, and now is reaching out because something has changed in their life. And so you can actually end up in a position where you start to see plenty of opportunities but it's called deal flow, right? But the, the fact is that there are other entities out there who are doing the same thing. They are reaching out to these people, trying to buy these books of business. And so you need to do something to stand out from the rest of them. And, you know, earlier I was saying people do business with people. Mm-hmm. And this is where the relationship, you know, I, there's a, um, a guy in Georgia. He's a CPA, John Bly. He wrote a book called Cracking the Code. It's a really great book because it talks about integration after an acquisition. I highly recommend it. Um, I was talking with John and he was saying that he regularly gets like communications like letters or emails or what have you from people who are saying, I'm looking to acquire CPA firms in the South or in Georgia or in the United States or whatever. And it's obviously this total form letter that they're sending to 10,000 CPAs. Definitely. Right. And you know, when I was talking with him, he said, it's really funny because if any of them typed my name into Google, they would know that I'm acquiring CPA firm in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so letters like that, communications like that just get dismissed. They, they just get dismissed out of hand because it's, it's, it's clearly not, there's been no investment yeah. on the part of the person that wants to buy to, to communicate that that seller is important, right? And so this is why coming up with that description, number one is key. And number two, doing something to build a relationship with that um, seller to demonstrate that you are a capable person. Like, especially if you want to, you know, if you're going to have to end up paying on average, a little bit more to try to get just the right book of business that you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may want to introduce some amount of seller financing to the deal. I know you said you could get hundred percent financing, but I don't like that. I, yeah. it doesn't leave you any options in case there's a problem. Right. But if, if you can demonstrate that you're the guy and you're capable and you're, you know, honest and trustworthy and et cetera, and they, and they decide they like you and they want to sell to you. then then they can make all those other things happen for you as far as, you know, different terms and things. Yeah, that makes sense. And I did think about that too, because um, think about it. If there's an established entity that's making money, there's cash flow, Mm -hmm. and you could do the financing, then why isn't everybody else doing this too? You know, it seems like it's it's an easy way to grow many businesses. Um, And so that you have to do, so you have to stand out. And you also have to think about it too, from the seller's perspective. Like if you own an an agency right now, you're making $200,000 a year. Let's say that a lot of that is passive work. Like it's very minimal servicing on your end as the owner's end. Why would you really sell right now? So I I was, I did consider these things and and then did consider, you know, standing out from 
from others. One way standing out is slightly paying a little bit more than market value, not too much more because I do want to be profitable. And then the second is being able to offer so many other services to clients and making sure they're in really good hands. And then of course, a couple other things like the uh, application or implementation of technology. I would assume that if you had a pool right now of um, owners who were in their 70s, maybe there's probably a lot of technology that they're lacking. I just, that's an assumption. It's not a fact. Um, I would just think that, and then maybe applying the technology could make things a lot more smooth and it could provide more value to the clients. The clients could benefit more from more technology being implemented in an agency, which we could do no problem. Um, and then as far as other forms of communication with clients, like podcasting and YouTube videos, mm -hmm. I do have a YouTube channel and a podcast, so we could probably somehow integrate that, connect that with clients to provide them with more resources virtually without always having to get on the phone with them. So I did you know, kind of consider these little small details. Yeah, you, you've disappeared there again. But oh, um, so let's, let's think about this industry, right? You've got these companies, these insurance companies, and they want to sign people up, right? And there's, there are certain companies that use a direct method, right? They, they advertise and they want people to call in uh, like that lizard company that sells car insurance, right? And so, so that's one model. The other model in this industry is to have people like yourself, right? The independent business owners who act on behalf of these, these other one, these insurance companies and, um, and are paid a commission. So, so you are an outsourced sales force for several different of these insurance and investing entities, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, one of the questions that I sometimes ask people, like, I think it, it's interesting to make thought experiments where you look at other industries. If you look at restaurants, for example, um, you know, McDonald's, they're a franchise, but Olive Garden is not, right? All the Olive Gardens are owned by the main company and they have managers in place. And all the McDonald's are franchises. Yes. And, and there's a franchisee. Right. Did you see the movie, The Founder? I love that movie. I've seen it like three or four times in a row. So yeah, yeah. I did like actually learn from that movie. And do you, do you remember uh, the big aha moment that Gray Kroc had that in, at first he was selling McDonald's franchises to the guys from the golf course and, yeah. and they, they had nothing to do with them. They were just putting money in and, and letting it go. Yes. And then he, then he, um, then he went down to the VFW, I think, and he started to meet uh, married couples and he yes. was presenting it to them as an opportunity and they were working in it. Yes. They were making sure everything was working well. Mm -hmm. And so it's that owner interest, right? The, the interested owner is going to do everything they can to make sure that the businesses run correctly, that the customers are taken care of, et cetera. That's the challenge you would face. Like if you bought 50 agencies in every state, yeah. you know, how are you going to make sure that the customers are being taken care of the same way that an owner would? Yep. That's the challenge. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that in business, there are sometimes good problems and bad problems. And I think that having all those agencies would be a good problem and it could lead to other things like outside consulting help, um, outside sales and marketing support to make sure that these clients are being um, taken care of and being serviced properly. But I do, I, I do agree with you. I think that you have to do consider these things. And especially if you have an agency that's already being serviced by the owner, the owner is directly there. The, the owner might provide his or her cell phone number to their clients and their, their clients are used to just that personal owner touch. Mm -hmm. um, and then now we're going to replace that with somebody in Chicago who's, you know, running all these agencies virtually that might interfere with the business. I think it might interfere with the business. Well, I, I think that one of this challenge, you might be able to address this through what you were talking about earlier, how you were saying you wanted to create some kind of um, limited partnership structure to be part yes. of the owners ownership or, or, you know, honestly, there's a lot of different ways you could set it up. You could have different kinds of corporate structures too. It's going to require a lot of thought and talking with, people like attorneys and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But you could create a structure where when you acquire an office, you hire someone to be that office's manager, but you part of that is to require them to 
to put money in to become a, one of the limited partners. It's a good something. idea. I didn't think about that. It's a good idea. Like you, you could use, essentially you could make it into an, uh, if not an employee owned organization, at least a management owned organization where the, you know, people at a certain level who are in charge of a group of a portfolio of clients or something like that do get to participate in an ownership stake of the overall entity. You, um, there's a guy I know in Ontario, in Canada, who has uh, built a business that is in professional services, and it's kind of along the same lines as what what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and basically, what he put down as his challenge was how do I? And, and he's got licensed people working for him too. His his what he put down as his business challenge is how do I get these licensed people who have traditionally always been independent practitioners in their industry? These people always just open their own office, right? So he said, how do I get it so that they want to be part of my organization because it's faster, easier, and cheaper for them to be successful by being with me rather than going on their own. Yeah. Right. And so he focused on two things, marketing and backend. So as he's grown his business by adding more and more of these licensed professionals, um, they have one central office with an admin team and all the systems in place. So that the back end work is done as efficiently as possible, which, you know, nobody likes the paperwork, right? Mm-hmm. The administrative support is number one, but number two, you know, they dominate marketing in their industry. Yeah. So if anyone goes looking for, for the, for a service like that, like they get just hit from every direction with this firm's name. And so a new person who goes into that industry who acquires their license, they, they have to then face the question, do I want to try to start up and do everything myself? Or do I just sign on with these guys? And maybe at the end of the day, they might not earn quite as much as they would if they got into their own office and then built it up and had a successful ascent and growth over five, 10 years. But if you can start making money earlier, right from the get-go, mm-hmm. even if you don't ever earn quite as much, it still makes much more sense. It's very similar to the McDonald's approach. Like you can go out, if you wanted to, you can go out and start your own burger place or you could franchise with McDonald's essentially use their entire blueprint, everything, every ingredient they have um, in exchange, obviously, for royalties and following their rules. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I do think that's a good idea. I didn't think about the management ownership part. And I think that that would help a lot. Um, it would help with retention too, because if, because think that that's a huge problem in the industry right now is that if you work for an insurance agency, you have your insurance license, it's the same license working somewhere as it is owning an agency somewhere else on your own. So that's a huge problem for insurance companies, insurance agencies, is that it's, it tends to be hard to retain people because they can go out and do it on their own. Whereas if you work at a manufacturing company, it's not like you could just tomorrow leave and go start your own manufacturing company. You need land, you need warehouses, you need equipment, but insurance, yeah. you just need a license, the same license you're using for employment, and then a phone and a computer and clients. Well, and now you don't even need an office, right? Everyone expects you to be doing it from home anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The... Um, I have had many, many, many people in industries like hairdressing or massage therapy, or even, even like law firms have told me that as owners of those businesses, they, they actually consider their employees to be their customers Mm -hmm. because of the the problem you just cited, right? Like in, in a hairdressing shop, it's the same thing. Any one of them could go and start cutting hair in their basement. Right. So why are they going to stay here? Yes. So I like as far as far as your path, Sari, I would I would say, number one, you need to do your first acquisition because living through that process and and going through the deal making, the, the financing and then the integration of the new clients and serving those clients is going to fill out your perspective on what your grand plan is, is actually going to be about, right? But, uh, but I think one of the key things that needs to be a part of the plan is how you're going to have a really sticky HR solution 
Yes. Or getting people that are like, just like you to be in your organization reporting to you and being happy about it and wanting to stay for 30 years. Okay. Because if you can figure that one out, well, I think that's the biggest problem. Because if you, if you can't get good people to stay long-term, then the people who are the customers, the policyholders, yeah. you know, if they're always dealing with someone else, like I, I, you know, personally, my car insurance is with a local broker yeah. and their office is four blocks from my house. So, you know, I, I know I can always get, when I lost my car in the flood uh, back in June, um, like I couldn't get through to my insurance company, but I got through to them. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, well, we can't speak for the insurance company, but in 99% of the time, this is what they would do. And this is what they would do. And this is what they would do. And, and they gave me the details I needed to make the decisions that day to get back home because I was on vacation. Um, if I had had the, the lizard insurance and I couldn't get through on the toll-free number, I wouldn't know what to do. I would just be like stranded on hold. Yeah, and you're right. That's usually a selling point with clients is that you, you, you're not dealing with the 1-800 number. You're dealing with me directly. And then I can go deal with the big company you know, on your behalf. Yeah. But if, if the, the people that I talk to keep changing, yeah. then that advantage starts to erode. Okay. Right? So this is, this is why the HR question is the big one. And you can, you can look to other industries. Real estate would be another industry to kind of examine. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think Berkshire Hathaway, mm-hmm. no, Keller Williams has a really interesting, and there's a book, the guy who set it up originally. I, I can't remember who he is or what the name of the book is, but I'm sure if you Google Keller Williams, you know, real estate plan or how they organize things, they've got this program where agents are really incentivized to always stay with Keller Williams forever. Yeah. And so reading of that nature might spark some ideas in your head too. Yeah. I think there's also EXP Realty. They have like shares. So like you go buy shares of the company. So this way you have that retention. Um, again, with real estate, you can go work anywhere you want with the license, the same license you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, you're right. EXP does the same thing where they have like an ownership writer. Um, something to the stickiness, something to keep the agents, like you said, like the customers um, with the firm. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, so how long have you been doing this? So I've been licensed since 2015 mm-hmm. and I, from since 2015 till now, I've worked at uh, property and casualty insurance companies, healthcare insurance companies, and now bank on yourself and financial services. So overall, like six years in the industry, specifically with bank on yourself, two years. Okay. And like you find this to be like, you know, this is the thing for you. Like you finally, finally found home kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the reason why is because this is something I can do. There's so many different angles to this is that I, it's unlimited. You know, I think that if I were to uh, stay in this industry and keep learning. I would keep learning um, until probably until retirement, until I'm like 70 years old. And I would still have more to learn. So it's a very dynamic industry. There's a lot to it and there's a lot of potential. And I understand this very well. I'm uh, working with auto insurance companies and Medicare and life insurance. They have a lot of similarities. And I do like the way that insurance companies think. They're constantly looking for new customers, but they're also very risk averse. They're, they're constantly managing risk, very similar to how banks loan out money. I like that way. And that's kind of why I named my show Thinking Like a Bank. I wanted to kind of uncover those thinking principles of large corporations and then bring that down to like small businesses. So yeah, this is something I'm very passionate about and something I do see myself doing until retirement. Awesome. I, I mean, I can tell you're passionate about it. And I know that the type of stuff that, uh, that you and Mark work on is really important for people because some of, I, some of my clients have ended up uh, working I know with Mark, like to set up some different things to help in their business and in their personal life too. So do, do you, uh, you want to give a shout out uh, as far as your contact info and your and talk to us about your show and let everyone know where they can learn more about the kind of stuff you're doing? Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, so they can, if anybody wants to reach out to me for a free consultation to talk about insurance or financial services or bank on yourself, you can go to Finn, 
assetprotection.com. It's F-I-N, assetprotection.com. And then there you can find everything. You can find the podcast, my Calendly account to book an appointment, our YouTube channel, my email, everything is in the website, finassetprotection.com. That's awesome, Sari. Anything, we have a couple of minutes left. Anything else I didn't cover that you were kind of thinking you wanted to talk about? No, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, you really, you really understood my idea and where I wanted to go. So thank you for asking the questions. And you know, I could tell you're very experienced with consulting, like you know what you're doing. So I'm glad I did this call with you. Um, and, and you know, I think a, a challenge is also going to be finding these entities. You're right. I can, I, I'm pretty sure like nowadays you could just pull a list. Like I can say, give me a list of every insurance agency in the whole country. In, the, in all 50 states and I could probably get that list and then maybe even divide it into 50 states into each state. So um, do you have any other tips for like how I could find these um, agencies and potentially uh, narrow down to the right ones for sale? Um, I don't think um, I have any tips for finding them because like, like you just yeah. suggested, there's because they're licensed entities, there's usually lists you can dig up somewhere, right? Because yes. the, the states usually keep maintained lists. Like in case a consumer wanted to go find out, is this person actually licensed, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah. Th- those lists exist. So, but I think that the, the, the challenge will be in the triaging of the list because you could, you're probably going to end up with a list of licensed people, but a bunch of them might work in insurance companies, for example. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. And so uh, I know that I've had uh, some people that I've worked with who have hired people like VAs to, to do some of that legwork. Like to, to look up each person and look up their address and say, oh, nope, that's a big company. We don't want this person. Like just, or, or this, you know, this person's registered business address is, appears to be a house, right? Mm-hmm. So this is probably an independent, you know, agent working in their own brokerage business. And so some of that triaging legwork, uh, especially because it can all be done online, can be done by, by like a, an assistant of some kind for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think, and just so you know that there's actually another license, there's the individual like insurance license, and then there's the entity insurance license. So maybe that would be the better list to go after the entity license, not just. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and so is it the same though in every state? Yeah. Every state has an entity license and an individual license. Okay. So, well, there you go. That's, that would be the easiest way to, to sort between the two. And then your assistant, when they identify ones that look like they could be the right size for you, they could then maybe do some poking around to try to figure out the name of the owner and then maybe find their LinkedIn profile URL and, you know, set it up for you. So you could then take a look at it quickly and say, okay, well, here's the business. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a link to their website. Here's a link to the owner's LinkedIn. And then you could personally take a quick look and say, yeah, this is one I want to reach out to or this one, no. Like all the groundwork of doing all that research, you can definitely find someone to help you with that. Okay. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. Thank you for that. Yeah. No problem. Sari, it's been awesome talking with you today. Thanks, David. Yeah, sorry about the camera issues. I wish I could have my camera. Oh, that's all right. Technical problems. But yeah, have thank a, you. Yeah. Have a, a very happy new year and I wish you all the best in 2022. You too, sir. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye.